Memorials have a vital place in the United States as well as in the world. They memorialize fallen soldiers, leading figures, key historical events, tragic circumstances. Think of the Lincoln Memorial or Washington Monument, World War I and World War II memorials, Flight 93. Even throw the, the Wright brothers in there if we want to move to something less frightful. Family funerals for loved ones. We've seen in our tenants of memorials lately, releases of balloons. If you do a little internet search, you'll see butterflies and doves. Memorial jewelry, rings, lockets, necklaces. Memorial videos and portraits. Memorial trees. Uh, Favorite foods, favorite drinks, favorite sports, clothes that capture the loved one's favorite activities. It's, It's our way of remembering, of capturing the meaning of a life in a world that's passing away. We name streets, buildings, parks, many more to remember, to, to not forget. You know, sometimes I'm asked, what, what do I say to someone that's lost a loved one? And the response is to just be there. Sometimes it's best not to say anything, just to be there, your presence. Should I talk about the past? Should I talk about reminders of that person's life? Would that be painful? Yes, it will be painful, but that's part of life's meaning, the memories. may not be appropriate to do it right away, but there's opportunity to, to talk about the difficulties of life, to remember, to not forget. We're watching a nation that seems to be increasingly forgetting its past. The, the Constitution of America is interpreted in light of a, a progressive interpretation, meaning we're, it's, we're, we're on the right side of history, we're, we're told, Right? We're told that we don't want to pay attention to the, the Father's interpretation, to the context, but rather to our interpretation. And with that, we begin to lose our identity, lose the identity of the revolutions that have been fought, the freedoms that were fought for. Our parents and grandparents who lived and fought those wars are dying. And while our nation has sought to memorialize them through monuments and museums and holidays, sadly, our nation's stories are, are being lost, fading dimly into the past. We know this. A new identity is being created. The ancient paths, even of our country, are being ignored, rejected, and worse, perceived as a threat on the wrong side of history. Now, I'm speaking to the choir here, and I only do that not to talk about our earthly citizenship, but to actually use that to fuel a desire to remember our heavenly citizenship. If remembering is so important to the meaning of our lives and to uh, of a nation and who we are, then how much more so remembering, memorializing, understanding what God has done in the past that marks our identity as Christians so that we do not lose sight of who we are or where we're going or what God has done for us. In Psalm 66, we find a memorial of redemption. God purposes to evoke passion, passion for the glory of his name and passion for the glory of his work, his work to save his people and has worked to grow his people, yes, as we heard in that song, through trials and difficulties. God's memorial of redemption gives his people an identity with his name, an identity with his work. So as his people, and we're going to see in Psalm 66, they're invited. Now, this is, in the, in the, this is many years from the Exodus event. 
they're invited to look back and to consider the Exodus event, to consider redemption. In fact, they're invited to come and see. It's not just look back and remember. They're invited to to be present in that event. Let's look at verses 5 through 7 just to see this memorial of redemption. It's the heartbeat of this psalm. It's beating. Everything flows from this. Verse 5 of Psalm 66. Come and see. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome. Some translations terrifying. In his deeds toward the children of man. He's dealing with people. The congregation of God's people in the nation of Israel. He turned the sea into dry land and passed through the river on foot. He's going to talk here about the Red Sea as this pivotal moment in the life of Israel as they're redeemed out of Egypt and brought through the Red Sea. But then he picks up on the river theme, moving all the way through the wilderness into the Jordan River, into the Promised Land. And we're going to see pictures here of this wilderness journey as they talk about going from uh, the net to crushing burdens on their backs, men riding over our heads. This is verse 11 and 12. So it's this whole depiction of the Exodus event captured in the Red Sea being moved through that, the judgment of Pharaoh in Egypt, the deliverance of his people through the wilderness and into a place of abundance, into the promised land. Verse 6 again, there did we rejoice in him. Now notice, there did we rejoice. And this is many generations removed from this event. We rejoiced in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves how does this generation hundreds of years if not thousands of years removed from this event see it come and see there did we rejoice well they participated through a confessional participation a confessional participation this is a a worship service this These words, come and see, are reminiscent of an invitation used of processionals to Jerusalem for a worship festival. They're gathering at the temple. It is worship to the Lord. Proclamation. You can see that it's written to the choir master. So we have a a leader here that's leading the people in worship. And the psalmist invites the congregation of believers in the present to behold the work that God has done in the past in the Exodus event, reminding them that they're one with the people of God. They're united with them. They're united as a congregation of God's people so they could make this confession and join the people of God in confessing these things. You'll notice the plural pronouns if you just trace through in verse 6. We rejoice, verse 9, our soul, our feet, verse 10, tested us, tried us, verse 11, brought us, our backs, verse 12, our heads, we went and brought us. Verse 12, these corporate statements, they were part of the congregation of God's people. And they're united also in a confession. As this generation is confessing, they're united together with the people of old who have confessed these things. I want you to see Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 26. To the second generation, the first generation is passed on. The second generation moving into the promised land Moses gives them this confession. And Psalm 66 is simply reiterating Moses' words in a worship service. 26, Deuteronomy 26, verse 1. 
When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it. Drop down to verse 5. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. There is the confession. Together, corporately, come into the land there to make this confession. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly, humiliated us, and laid on us hard labor. There's the picture words used in Psalm 66, these burdens laid on their back. Verse 7, we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place, Psalm 66 talks about the abundant land, and gave us this land flowing with milk and honey. That is their confession. That's how these terms of come and see, there did we. See, the people of God together as they're making this confession are joining the whole people of God as they were in that event, the Exodus event. So they're united as a congregation of God's people. They're united in confession. But they're also united in representative leadership. It's interesting, this corporate calling in verses 1 through 12 changes to an individual in verse 13. Look at Psalm 66 again, verse 13. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows. And the description of these sacrifices are very extravagant. This isn't a common person. This is a keen leader reminiscent to Solomon in 1 Kings 8, where he offers abundant sacrifices and calls on the name of the Lord. Or Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 29, offering sacrifice to the Lord, leading the people in worship. This is a worship service. Notice, remember, the title, it's to the choir master. There's a leader of God's people here, representing the people. That only takes a little bit of stepping back from Scripture and remembering that the congregation of God's people and the king, the prophet and the priest, pointing forward to the great Messiah who would come, the Messiah who would ultimately save his people and lead them to the throne of grace before God in worship and praise. But this Messiah, the ultimate Messiah, would establish a congregation made up of Jew and Gentile nations from all the earth. Well, you see those themes here, which is so interesting. In verse 1 of 66, shout to God all the earth. You see it again in verse 4, all the earth worships you. In verse 8, bless our God, O peoples. It's a description of the nations. This is an invitation beyond just the Jew to the nations as well. Now, some have thought that maybe this was written to encourage Israel while they're in Babylon, surrounded by the nations. And it gives them a reminder that God's ultimate goal is to bring salvation, not to the Jew only, but also to the nations. In Isaiah 49, 5-6, the promised Messiah would bring Jacob, would bring Israel back to him, but it would also become a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That's the promise, that the Messiah would establish a congregation made of Jew and Gentile. How does this psalm encourage the church of Jesus on this side of the cross? Well, if you just go back again, we step back and we look through the pages of history, of Scripture, and remember that God promised Abraham that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed, Genesis 12, 3. 
And in Galatians 3, 9, Paul says, those who are faith are blessed along with Abraham. In Galatians 3, 14, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the nations, the Gentiles. Galatians 3, 29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the promise of Scripture. This is the promise of God that through Abraham, those who believe in the seed in Jesus Christ, the offspring, the Messiah, would become Abraham's spiritual offspring, his children. Now, I want you to see 1 Corinthians chapter 10, because we're asking the question, how should this evoke praise for me, this side of the cross? Lest we just get lost in studying more history about the nation Israel. I want this to simultaneously encourage our hearts. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul makes this astounding statement, and it shouldn't surprise us after what we've just reminded ourselves with God's promise to Abraham, and Paul applying that to even believers in Christ that were children of Abraham. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this is an astounding statement. By the way, he's writing to the Corinthian church made up of Jew and Gentile. It's important. Jew and Gentile, you see it in chapter 1, 18 and following, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Jew and Gentile, that's the context. Now listen to what he says. Verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, he's calling this Corinthian church, made of Jew and Gentile, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He's just swept up Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and said to the Jewish Gentile church, these are our fathers. We're brought into this drama of redemption. He can also say in verse 6, and these things become examples for us. 1 Corinthians 10, 6. It should kindle our hearts because we have experienced on this side of the cross the Messiah's accomplishment of gathering nations to see the light of Jesus Christ. And we are here with these little churches throughout Western, the Western world, the Eastern world, congregating to glory in Christ because of what he has done. Now, with that background in mind, now that we can go, okay, well, this is to encourage me. I'm, I'm of all the earth. I'm the, the people, the nations. This is amazing. Now let's look at how this is a memorial of God's redemption. Look at verses 1 through 7, and there we're going to see that God's memorial of redemption is meant to evoke praise for God's redeeming name. Praise for God's redeeming name. We need to know who he is. If we're his children, for his people, we should know who he is. And so the psalmist says this memorial, this Exodus event that is going to point forward, 1 Corinthians 5 says, to Christ our Passover lamb. It's a picture and portrait. I love to view these old testament or old covenant sacrifices and pictures as an eclipse i don't mean eclipse in the bad sense just as the moon stands before the sun and it's a dangerous thing to look at because the rays of the sun are still going to affect you but it creates a shadow over that sun there's a beautiful unity that's also there in these types and pictures these sacrifices the passover lamb if you remember the event israel is in egypt under the bondage the slavery of pharaoh and God steps in with the angel of death in judgment, but provides a Passover lamb, a lamb that's sacrificed, and the blood is put on the doorposts. And those who hide underneath that blood, the angel of death in judgment, delivers them by judging. The two go together. He judges, he delivers. 
those who are under the lamb. Anyone from Egypt, any of the strangers could hide under that lamb's blood. And many did. Many go off with Israel from Egypt who weren't Jews. That's the context. He leads them through the Red Sea. All those are meant to be pictures. The New Testament says Christ is our Passover lamb. That understanding of redemption out of Egypt is meant to prefigure, to look forward to Christ redeeming us from the slave market of sin. Christ is our sacrifice, paying for our sins, a perfect, uh, unblemished lamb, perfect in righteousness, obedient to God on our behalf. So as you look at that moon and that eclipse, that moon is going to disappear. And what happens at the cross is the glory of the sun shines forth in all its glory and splendor. You can take that which way you want to, the S-U-N and the S-O-N, Christ Jesus. So as we look together at this Exodus event, let us see the ultimate purpose, the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ that all these things are pointing to. So let's look at the praise of God's redeeming name. Verses 1, we'll, we'll go to verse 6. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Seeing the glory of his name, that's the weightiness of his name. Name emphasizes character. His, repu- his reputation is uh, underlined in glory. His honor is underlined in glory, but it's the glory, the, the honor that is, that is in light of his name. It's according to his name. So in other words, it is because of his name that he is glorious. And we are to then give him glorious praise, weighty praise. So the more we understand the name of God, understand his character that evokes deep praise, the more we understand that his love isn't a fading love, an unfaithful love, but an eternal love, a self-sacrificing love in Jesus Christ, a holy love, a love that's full of wisdom, a love that is omnipresent, present with us. All these attributes of God, we begin to understand the glory of his name, and that evokes Deeper praise, deeper praise. And the more that we we grow in this life and we see the world fading around us and the things that we trusted in failing us and our own strength failing us and our wisdom failing us, the more we see the grandeur of the name of God and that evokes great praise. It's not because God's name grows. It's because of our understanding of his name grows and the praise grows with it. Verse 3, what are we to say? Again, these are confessions. How awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. It's describing subjugation. But it's not a subjugation out of worship, out of trust, out of faith. But it's a subjugation that meets the terrifying holy God unprepared. Meets God in their rebellious state. There will be a subjection before the almighty, glorious, holy, omnipresent God. And it will be on God's terms. For believers, we trust in Him. We cling to the redemptive event by which He has bought us, paid the, the guilt price for our sins, offered a perfect life in Christ. And so we come, yes, bowing too, but we come out of worship and adoration and love. The two are contrasted. Verse 4, all the earth worships you. So this is the nations all brought into this glorious event and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Think of a choir. These parallelisms in verse 4 are meant to give you images of music that's wafting upon your ears. One line upon another line. One note upon another note. Think of the waves, the ocean waves as they come crashing down. That's the idea of singing praise after praise after praise to you. Verse 5, come and see what God has done. 
He's awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. Think of what it means for all the earth to praise his name. When, if you've been to a foreign nation, uh, you'll find really quickly that you've been shut out from communication because you don't understand the language. Uh, social activities because you don't understand the culture. <laughs> uh, citizen privileges because you're not part of that nation. It's a frightening reality to step off of that plane and land for the first time in a, a foreign country and not be able to communicate or relate to the people around you. I, I sat in Delhi for 12 hours, grabbing onto my suitcases and just holding on for dear life. You know, foot around this one, leg around this one. 12 hours, that was a long day. It was my first experience. <laughs> Some of you know what that's like in different countries. What do you need in that situation? You need a name. Yeah, you need a name. Because when I got to the border and custom patrol, what are they going to say? Who are you here to visit? Give me a name. Well, I'm here because Tom Shuck, or I'm here because of Vinit. I needed a name. And then they're asking, well, who are you staying with? Uh, What's your connection to this person? What's your relationship? What is his address and phone number? It gets more personal. For me to be accepted, I need to have a name. Name is vital in Scripture. In verse 2, to seeing the glory of his name. Name is vital. When God created the light and darkness, he named the light day and the darkness he called night. He established a covenantal, Jeremiah 33 says, relationship with creation. It was his servant. He was called to obey him. And it does. But he named it as the master. When God covenanted with Abram, he gave him the name Abraham. And to Jacob, he gave the name Israel. When God established a saving relationship with Abraham in Genesis 12, Abraham offers an offering of worship and calls on the name of the Lord. He knows his name. The creatures can know the name of God because he has stepped down and established a saving relationship with his people. Remember Moses, he's sent off by God to lead the people out of the bondage in Egypt. And he says, and when they ask who sent me, What is your name that I should tell them? And God says, I am has sent me to you. And then he says, it's the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. So he establishes a a family relationship. And then he establishes a redemptive relationship. He says, I I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. The word bring is to redeem, is to to buy out, to purchase, and to rescue. So here's my name, Yahweh, the self-existent one. Yahweh, depending on how you pronounce it which school you come from, it's, it's, I am. Self-existent one, that one. Well, who's he to me? The one who's redeemed, the one who saved, who stepped down and in grace provided a sacrifice to bring me into his family. We look at Matthew one twenty one, and the angel says to Mary, you shall call his name Jesus. And then he identifies his work, for he will save his people from their sins. So what we're saying here is that when his name is glorified, what does Psalm 66 do is he looks at his work, his redemptive work, to say, now you understand his name. Understanding his redemptive work, I know that this self-existent God, why would he think of me, has stepped down to save me, a sinner and a rebel, to bring me into his family. That's his name. And Jesus, he's the one. 
Yeshua, Savior, God saves. Romans 10.13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You think, well, why didn't God just list his names? Well, he certainly did, right? We've got wonderful titles that help us understand God's relationship to us. But here the emphasis is on redemption. Why redemption? Because in redemption, God's holiness is put on display. He judges sin, right? The angel of death is judging Pharaoh, judging Egypt. At the cross, he is judging the substitute, Jesus Christ, in our place, those who trust in him. He's judging. That tells us he's a holy and a righteous God. He's just. He's pure. He's perfect. But is that all that he is? Redemption also says in the sacrifice that he's offered in Christ that he's also gracious and loving and merciful and his loving kindness knows no end. And so we see beautifully together his mercy and his holiness, his righteousness and his grace, his justice and his love together unfolding the name of God for us. And now we can say, I know this God. He's not just the one far off. Atheists would love to say, oh, Yeah, he's the far off God. He cannot come near us. We can't take scripture for God's revelation. It's man's view of God. They try to bind God off in his holiness. Or as we see more of our Eastern religions, binding God in his presence. Well, he's here. Then he's part of me. He's one with me. It's all God is just loving. And redemption says, no, atheists, wrong. Pantheists, Hinduism, Buddhism, wrong. God is holy and loving. Just and gracious. And we see that in the cross. This is why when we look at redemption, it causes us to recognize the beauty and glory and weightiness of his name, that this God would come down to save me a sinner. I remember... Uh, it's not been that long. Robin told me is the anniversary of our rookie dog that, that died. I know I'm going to go from the heights of that to this. <laughs> but these are images that reflect, portray. So a rookie dog, had him for like 13 years. You know, he's part of the family. You know how it works. He got these pets. This is a Malinois. You need to look that up. Military dogs. Pretty, just high intense. But great for living in bad parts of California, which we did. <laughs> Love that dog. He died. <laughs> So I, I, I'm kind of an emotional person. You know, I've got a, a female German shepherd, Alaskan Malamute. She's a pretty big girl, but she's got a very soft heart, if I can personalize her. We say she moans like a whale, and she does. That's what Alaskan Malamutes do. So it's like, oh, boy. And Chris Dennis will come over. What's, the, what's this whale noise going on? So I feel bad. She's just pouting. So I, you know, Dad... We love uh, some old movies that we've been drawn to. I won't tell you what it is, but there's a dog named Hercules. It's a big dog. And I'm, I'm off at the shelter and find this, this big dog. And I'm thinking, you know, uh, my kids, they remember this. They love that movie. And so uh, it's two years old. I, I know he's about 200 pounds, but uh, he'll be a good guard dog. You know, he could probably keep up with my, my shepherd, bring him home. You know, the first thing he does, this is Saturday. I'm going to teach Sunday morning, and I'm there preparing my notes at the kitchen table and looking out the back door with the two dogs, seeing how they're adjusting. You know, they, they did the shelter did the whole courting thing. They seemed to work well. 
Uh, he decided he was going to be the king, and there's nothing you can do about a dog like that. I mean, this is the biggest breed in the world. It's the old English Mastiff, if you haven't figured that out from 200 pounds. And he's still a puppy. <laughs> That's the problem. So what he would do is he would get up in the, the shepherd's face, exalt himself. And it was, I mean, he was a brute, is what he was. His name was Brutus. That's, we changed it to Hercules, but it, it didn't work. He stuck up his face in, in her face and then exalted himself over her. And she started to cower, and then I find her hiding in the back of the yard, and he would take his perch on that back step. And Robin comes in that morning. I'm looking at my notes. I said, he's gone. She's like, what? He's gone. I can't handle that. This dog thinks he owns the, 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 the house. <laughs> and my little shepherd, she can't handle that. That is not going to happen. I had pity on my dog and wanted to protect my dog. And so that Brutus, after church Sunday, I took him home. I told some of you, I'm taking this brute back. <laughs> what were you doing in the first place? Well, I wanted to own the biggest breed in the world for 24 hours is what I wanted to do. In this psalm, Psalm 66, we see in verse 7 this reminder. If God is faithful to redeem his people, he's also faithful to put down the rebellious who exalt themselves, who raise themselves up. If you think that you can approach God in your own strength, the idea is to raise up, to pride self. I couldn't... I couldn't Escape that picture with Brutus. That's what he was doing. His face in the dog's face, priding himself. You know, I tried to get him to submit. Uh, that's really tough to do. What you do is you roll them over with a dog 200 pounds. So what I had to do is kick out his back legs and then turn his shoulders and get him down. I thought, Robin's never going to be able to do this to teach him submission. This dog didn't want to submit. No, no heart for that. God will not put up with those who don't submit to the Son who exalt themselves, who establish themselves. That is his name. So where do we find hope and rescue? Where do we find the pity of God for us? It's in Christ. It's in his redemption. Listen to Sinclair Ferguson. He says this in his book, Deserted by God. In asking for mercy, you're asking for God's pity. You are asking that God will show it to you by but withdraw it from Jesus. You want mercy? He's going to have to take it from Jesus. And asking to experience God's steadfast love, you're asking that Jesus would feel it has been removed. And asking to taste God's abundant mercy, you are asking him to refuse it to Jesus as he dies on the cross. And asking God to blot out your transgressions, you are asking that they will be obliterated by the blood of Jesus. And asking to be washed, you are asking that the filth of your sin will overwhelm Jesus like a flood. In asking to know the joy of salvation, you are asking that Jesus will be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. In asking to be saved from blood guiltiness, you are asking that in your place, Jesus would be treated as though he were guilty. In asking that your lips would be opened in praise, you are asking that Jesus will be silenced as a sheep before her shearers is silent. In asking that the sacrifice of a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart be acceptable, you are asking that Jesus' heart and spirit will be broken. In asking that God will hide his face from your sins, you are asking that he will hide his face from Jesus. In asking that you will not be cast out of God's presence, you are asking that Jesus will be cast out into outer darkness instead. Dare we ask God to do this for us? We do not need to ask him. He has already done it. In Christ, he has already done everything that is necessary for our salvation. That's beautiful. You want to understand God's name? You want to sing weighty, glorious praise? Then we join the people of God in a confession. We look back to the memorial of the Exodus event, which casts us forward to look at the great redemptive event of the cross. 
And there, God has mercy on us. And there, God pities us. Well, we've seen the redemption equated with his name. He's a redeeming God. He's also a God of justice and holiness and righteousness. But we see briefly as we wrap this up, and we're just going to run through it quickly, the refining work of God. He refines us. We're assured that God's salvation flows out of his very character, his name, right? We understand his name through his redemption, so we're assured. This redemptive work is secure because of his name. Now we're ready to look at his plan for growing his people. And we're going to have to trust his name. We're going to have to look to redemption and trust in that as we go through trials and hardship that are going to grow us, to humble us, to cause us to depend upon him. So I want you to see in verse 8, right away, again, the corporate nature. Verse 8, bless our God, O peoples. And I'm just going to note, what are we blessing him for? Well, we're sounding his praise. We're letting it be heard. So corporately, we're gathered together, praising him. And out of that comes this great resounding echo of praise that can be heard. Verse 9, he's kept our soul among the living, so there's spiritual protection. And we get the spiritual protection because he's emphasizing this testing and trying and bringing us into abundance. He doesn't let our feet slip, verse 9. Verse 10, you've tested us. You've tried us as silver is tried. So he's refining that, removing the dross, removing the impurities from the silver. That moves to the top as a silversmith would work on the silver. And God refines us through fire, through testing, through trials. Verse 11, you brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. Again, drawing from the Exodus event, probably from the Assyrians, probably from Babylonians that invaded and affected Israel. Verse 12, you let men ride over our heads. It's depicting chariots that have conquered and riding over the dead. This is not easy language here. We went through fire and through water. That's an idiom describing we went through everything. Yet, you've brought us out to a place of abundance. Now, what's interesting here is we often read these psalms in light of an individualistic perspective, don't we? Lord, just protect my life. This is a corporate psalm. It's inviting us to remember that we are together as the people of God. We often take an individualistic mindset, and when we're suffering, we think God is judging us, we've done something wrong, so we're going to hide away from the gaze of God's people. He says, bring this into the gaze of God's people to worship him. Maybe we conclude we're strong enough, so I'm going to go deal with it on my own. But clearly the psalm emphasizes a a corporate emphasis. Together we suffer. Together we marvel at God's work to bring us through trials and bring us into, ultimately, the promised land. I'll give you another thought. The, The emphasis here on what God is doing in his congregation, his people. Israel becomes a wonderful picture of redeeming Wilderness trials, sanctifying them to bring them into the promised land. God's commitment is to his congregation. We often think, well, he's abandoning me. You guys, what we really want, we know we're going to go through trials as individuals, and we know he's going to take us home. What we want is for this congregation to continue to outlast us. Jesus says that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. That's what we want. Why? Because we want our children's children to hear the gospel. We want God to protect this body And preserve it until heaven, until glory. That's the thrust of this psalm as we look at the people of God, even in Israel. It's knowing that God's going to protect his people. It doesn't mean that somehow he's going to create a little isolated bubble for me and I'm never going to go through suffering or difficulty. 
But he invites us all to come together with our trials and sufferings so that we can grow together in Christ. Think of a musical instrument, how dull it would be to play one string. But when all the strings are plucked together, each playing their individual part, what a complimenting whole, an orchestra or a symphony, all playing together. How moving, how uplifting. Yes, but each string is being stretched and plucked and each drum is being beat and each key is being pressed and each horn is being blown. Stretched, plucked, beaten, pressed, blown together. What a beautiful sound, right? And that's what God does, bringing us together to suffer together, to go through trials together, to visit one another in times of need and hardship because we remember Redemption. He loves me. He loves us. He's redeemed us. He's sanctifying us. He's growing us. That's the thrust of this this beautiful psalm. That he will provide protection, spiritual purity, refinement, but worship. Worship. Now the leader leads them in worship. In verse 13. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you. That which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. So now the music leader, he's leading the congregation. He's saying, here's these offerings of sacrifice that I've committed to the Lord. It's a love offering. I will offer you burnt offerings of fattened animals, sacrifice of rams, bulls, and goats. And for us as Americans, and I'm part of this culture too, we don't quite see the preciousness of this. Uh, Animal rights have had an effect on us. We think how brutal that you would take an animal and you would offer it to God. It's only acceptable if you're trying to save an innocent child from an animal, to kill an animal in our culture, or at least for food, if you're not a vegan. It all has an impact on us. But what God does is he communicates the gravity of sin and death, that the penalty of sin is death. And he's given pictures of sacrifice, animal sacrifices, to portray this, that there will be a death, there is judgment. And he's provided those sacrifices, a picture of the sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who would redeem us, who would lay his life down for us. So the believer here is acknowledging extravagantly through a burnt offering both sin, but also the glory of God and worship and praise. Instead of using that for food, instead of using that for clothing, they're saying, God, you're worth more than me. I give this all to you. That's the perspective. Now, it's a whole burnt offering, meaning the whole animal is laid before the Lord and sacrificed. In fellowship offerings, they would grill it and they would partake. It's fellowship. But not in this case. It's the whole animal emphasizing my whole life belongs to you. So it's worship that acknowledges a need for substitute, a sacrifice. It acknowledges that we belong to him. But it's also worship that confesses God's personal work. Look at verse 16. Come and hear all you who fear God. And those, we've seen those statements of God-fearers. Again, nations are involved in this. I will tell of what he's done for my soul. It's personal. God has done this for me. I know that he's working through these trials in my life because of his redemptive plan. If he would come down and get involved in this sin-cursed world to save me, then I know that he's personally involved in these trials to grow me. So 17, I cried to him with my mouth and high praise was on my tongue. The idea is it was ready praise. It was jumping from his mouth in the midst of those trials. Verse 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If I'm going to pray to the Lord with hidden motives, I really want him to do this, to exalt myself. He's not going to listen. 
But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. This comes full circle now. Because if you're like me and you're reading verse 18, I'm asking, okay, Lord, you you don't listen to iniquity that's cherished. How's my heart when I'm praying? You know, there's secret motives. What's going on here? And what's interesting about this psalm is that he doesn't answer the question, I have not cherished iniquity in my heart. He actually answers that question, that doubt, with verse 20, which takes us back to the gospel. He uses this word steadfast love or hesed. It means covenant salvation love. It's a love equated with God's new covenant, God's saving covenant. And so the question of assurance comes actually from verse 20. Blessed be God, because he's not rejected my prayer, so he's accepted me, or removed his stead, there's our word, removed his gospel love, his steadfast love from me. It is sure. It is faithful. Why? Because he's redeemed. That's the memorial of redemption. I look at that event, that history, that he stepped into time and space to save me. He has not removed his love. He won't remove his love. That's his promise. And that's his encouragement in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the questions, is God hearing? Am I cherishing sin? Unless we're just going, hmm, I don't know about this gospel love. You're getting redemption out of steadfast love. Drop back to 65. This is a unit. Psalm 65 through 67 works together. And in Psalm 65, verse 3, it says, when iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. You pay for our sins. Verse 5, by awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God, of our salvation. He has provided the righteous, perfect substitute in Jesus Christ, who has fulfilled God's law perfectly in our place. His righteousness is imputed to the account of those who believe in him, so that we stand in his righteousness. He's provided atonement for our sins to pay for our guilt. If he's done that and sent Christ to do that, and Christ willfully, lovingly offered himself, he will not remove his steadfast gospel love. So I can look at the trials and hardships, and I can bring them into the body and not be afraid of my brokenness, of my failures. Not be afraid that I know that I've abused others and I've been abused. That I've victimized others and I've been a victim. I'm a participator in this sin-cursed world. How can I ever be used? Because God redeems. And we bring all that together and trust that he'll play these strings for his glory, his honor, and praise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a psalm like this. We pray that we would marvel at your name, that we praise your name, the the weightiness and honor and glory that is due your name. And we know that from ourselves we have no power and strength to ever give you acceptable glory that is in keeping with your name, but you've given us redemption to marvel at the Exodus event in the Old Testament and the cross event ultimately in the New to help us see the clarity, the color, the vividness of your name of your holiness and your grace, of your justice and your mercy. We were so at awe and asked that you would keep causing us to look at the pictures of redemption. Lord, you've given us one now in the Lord's Supper and communion, a memorial that reminds us that you have already prepared the feast, that Christ has already laid himself down as our substitute sacrifice. The banquet has been prepared. We don't add anything. We don't bring anything. We, we simply receive 
And in this glorious picture, you allow us to remember what you have prepared for us in Christ, that we rest by faith in him. As is exemplified as we eat and drink, we, we add nothing to this. We simply receive. And so we're thankful for these pictures and reminders. We ask that you even bless our time of worship around this table. In Christ's name, amen.